Okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the salvation that you have given us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have preserved down through the uh, centuries, in spite of all opposition, the inerrant Word of God. And that we can come to that Word tonight and understand keys to history and keys to our own future. So we ask the Holy Spirit who wrote the text to illuminate it to our hearts, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, again, to um, just have a kind of a compass to where we're going here, <clears throat> why are we doing what we're doing? In order to sort through the eschatology, that is, the prophetic sections of the Word of God, you have to have a background coming from the Old Testament. Because the guys that were God used to reveal um, these prof prophecies were people who had very, very good Old Testament backgrounds. They lived it. So it's necessary for us, particularly because we're not Jewish, we're Gentiles, most of us, uh, don't have that background. Uh, we're separated by centuries from what these people went through. Uh, we, we need to uh, get this, this background down in, in some detail. So chapter 5 here, with the destiny of the church, which is the, the uh, last chapter in the series, we started off talking about what does it mean to say the church is completed. Because when the church age is finished, that is the age of history in which we live, this age is coming to an end. Uh, by the way, that's, that's a concept that um, we, we want to remember. The Bible, um, over against paganism, believes in two kind of views to history, if you can think this way. Um, the Bible's view of history is that you have a series of ages that are progressing toward a final goal out here. It had a beginning, it has an end, it has a purpose. And there are distinct ages that can be identified in history. And those ages have various names. One of them is dispensation, or an age of, or in which God works certain ways. Um, that's one element of biblical history. Now, to make that clearer, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you what the pagan view of history is, by way of contrast. Pagan views of history generally look like this, an infinite line, left and right, just straight. No progress, just the same old thing. Um, in a humorous note, uh, Henry Ford um, once quipped to someone that, at, when asked for the definition of history, Henry Ford's definition was one damn thing after another. Um, but the point was that it was just meaningless. It was just one thing after another, just marbles. Um, that was my view when I was uh, going through high school and grammar school um, because not being a Christian then, 
Uh, I had no idea of perfect. History to me was just a course to ace by memorizing all the dates and spitting them back next week's test. Then you forget them and memorize a whole new set of dates for the next test. Um, and I went through and went through all the history courses that way. Um, but the point is that my way of thinking was it was a boring subject because all it was was a collection of marbles. No teacher at any time in my schooling ever sat me down and talked about a purpose in history. It's not going anywhere. And I, I believe that's probably rampant in the, in the school system. And the problem is that if students really think that there's no purpose in history, then students aren't stupid. They're going to draw the conclusion, well, if there's no purpose in history, there's no purpose in learning it. So why should I bother to study about history? So, so it, it's self-defeating. And this is the purpose, purposelessness of the non-Christian's position. Others have believed in a cyclic view of history, that history goes around and comes around, this kind of an idea. Those are ideas that are out there. You'll see here, it's phrased a thousand different ways, but in their basic essence, this is it. The Bible does not view history this way. The Bible views history as a sequence of events. And that the sequence of events are critical to, to be at pointers or milestones in the ongoing program of God. Uh, I hope maybe uh, when we get toward the end of this as a review, I'm going to hopefully get a video and I'm going to show you some missionaries who have locked on to this idea of progress through events in history as a device for clarifying the gospel into a pagan environment. But in any case, that's the idea. So on page 112 of the notes, we're looking at the church completed. So in our, what we mean is this age in which we live, when is it going to finish? When is the church completed? Well, to, to understand that, we have to understand that if we live, say, in the church age, we don't live in the age of Israel. And if we don't live in the age of Israel, there's a difference between the age of Israel and the age of the church. God works slightly differently in these different ages. And so on page 112, we cite two ways you can see this unfold. First, you can see that Israel is treated to a clocking system or a calendar system that from time to time, it's not always, but from time to time in, during this age of Israel, it's as though God starts a clock and then he stops the clock. And during this clock time, certain things have to happen. And it's, it's integrated to a standard clock. And the standard clock is the calendar given to Israel. And that calendar had certain days in it that were set by the moon, had Passover, Pentecost, fall feast of trumpets, and so on. We don't have to go into all the details. It's just that Israel had a national calendar. And that was the clock standard. So when days and months and so on are spoken of in the Bible, they're generally 360-day years because there's 30-day months. And they're lunar months. 
So Israel's clock isn't quite the same like our solar time. It just tends to be that way for reasons I'm not sure why God chose to do it that way, but he did. And so there's calendar time. Now, my only point in bringing that up on page 112 is this. You never find the church's age timed. There's no clock that runs. There's no calendar standard for the church because the church doesn't have a calendar. The church of believers in Timbuktu, believers in North America, believers in the middle of Australia, uh, believers in 500 A.D. and believers in 2000 A.D. And they, they all have different calendars. They can have different calendars. don't necessarily always have different calendars. So that's one feature, and it's not debatable, it's just an observation, it's a fact. That's the way Israel works and different from the church. Then in the second part of page 112, I say that the enemies of Israel are always other nations. They're always identified as Moab, they're identified as Aramea, or Syrians. Uh, they're identified as the Babylonians, they're identified as the Medes, or they're identified as the Persians, or they're identified as the Egyptians. The, it's always a political definition. Canaanites. Um, but now we come to the New Testament, and the enemies of the church aren't, aren't identified politically. They're identified... Uh, as the heavenly powers, the principalities. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So the church's enemies are defined differently than Israel's. Now, God hasn't changed. None of his attributes have changed. The method of salvation hasn't changed. What has changed is the administration that God is using for that increment of history. Now, if we turn over to the next page in the notes, we're talking about measures of progress for Israel and the church. And we're going to spend some, time, some detail here on the measures of progress for Israel. Um, I don't know why I thought of this, but my wife told me to remind people that Donna Beachler had a ten and a half pound baby boy. Speaking of progress. Um, anyway, Israel's progress. Israel is progressing in history toward its goal. Now, here's the problem. There are those, and they're the majority of believers down through church age, that believe when this happened right here, the church replaced Israel, and Israel doesn't have a future anymore. The church takes over where Israel left off. That's been the majority view down through the church. In the recent years, two to three hundred years, and the rise of a more consistent literal interpretation of the text, that we have gone back to a belief in the early church called premillennialism, which argues that Israel is not through, but that Israel is going to play a role in the next age to come. And that Israel's mission in history is yet to be fulfilled. And there are certain milestones to measure that, and that's what we're talking about in this section.
the milestones by which you measure Israel's progress or lack thereof toward her goal and the church's progress toward its goal. And we're going to see there's two different goals, two different groups of people. One doesn't replace the other. Now, to see Israel's progress, if you turn to page 114, there's a chart. And we're going to spend most of the evening now on this chart. Because the chart takes us to the heart of the Old Testament. And I want to read you a quote from an unbeliever, as far as I know he's an unbeliever, but a good Old Testament scholar, Walter Eichrod. And here's what Eichrod says. And you keep in mind, remember I said the Bible has progress and meaning to history? And this doesn't. And by the way, lest there be folks here tonight that say, well, gee, that's all nice and philosophical. What does it have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you personally. If the whole, that is, the whole of reality, the whole of history, does not have a purpose, what can you conclude about your life? It doesn't have a purpose either. How can your life have a purpose? if history itself doesn't have a purpose. If the whole is purposelessness, all the parts are purposeless. That's why it's so important. And Eichrod goes back and he points out, here's, the, here's a scholar now who studied the unbelieving nations down through history, and he studied the, the, the text of Israel. And here's what he said. The covenant, he's talking about the covenant, this concept of a treaty between God and man. The covenant knows not only of a demand, but a promise. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now, here's what he says that covenant concept does. In this way, it provides life with a goal and a history and a meaning. Because of this, now listen to this. Now, this is a guy who's, who's studied ancient history very thoroughly and is well aware of other extra-biblical views of history. And he said, because of this, that is because the Bible offers a revealed will of God for history, that history is going somewhere, because of this, the fear that constantly haunts the pagan world, the fear of arbitrariness, the fear of caprice within the Godhead is excluded. <clears throat> With this God, men know exactly where they stand and an atmosphere of trust and security is created. This is why it's important to think through the purpose of history. And sadly, in our own evangelical circles of all places, we find people demeaning the study of prophecy. We find people say, oh, well, that's just a peripheral thing. Hey, friend, if you don't study eschatology, you're going to have a lousy eschatology because everybody's got an eschatology. Everybody's got an idea of the future, of their future. And it may be an ill-thought-through idea of the future or maybe very consistent view of the future. Communism had a very definite eschatology. And look where it happened. Islam, the jihadists, they have a very definite eschatology. 
So everyone has some idea of the future. The question is, is it a biblical idea? Is it true or is it false? Is it a delusion? So study of prophecy is important because the study of prophecy tells us where history is going. Prophecy is a study of that, the goal of history. And that's why it's so important. So, the passages that we've selected on page 114, table number 8, there are four passages there. I'm going to take you through each of those four passages because those are an early roadmap of this progress of Israel. So, let me draw a little chart. And we'll develop this chart as we go through these passages. The first section in the Old Testament, we're going to go all the way back in the Old Testament to the book of Leviticus. That's important to understand that we're going back to about 1400 B.C. here. That's the age in which this was put together. So that's 14 centuries before Christ. 1,400 years Israel had just begun to exist in history. So, we've had the exodus. We've had the birth of the nation. The nation is just getting started now. There's no Old Testament. There is no line of prophets yet. There's no David. There's no uh, Samuel. There's none of the kings. There's none of the writing prophets. All that's yet the future. So this is 14 centuries before Jesus. And in each of these four passages, God reveals a map of where he's moving history ahead of time. And more than important than that, he is arguing for Israel's destiny, where Israel is going to go. And he's pointing out Israel's responsibilities. Human beings, we have choices. And those choices are intimately related to the future. Because choices have consequences. So he's a warning of choices and it's a warning of consequences. But it's also saying that God has a sovereign purpose over it all. So there's a mixture here of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And what does that look like? What do we keep going back over in this series again and again? Creator-creature distinction. So we'll put a big C here and a little C here. We see this again. God is the creator and God is moving history on a certain course just as sure as night follows day. But under his sovereignty, he allows creatures latitude enough to be held accountable and enough to be part of the movement that goes on in history. Now, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 30, and Deuteronomy 32 all refer and are based upon a certain set of covenants. So let me draw another diagram. Underneath all of them is the Abrahamic covenant. 
Now, those who have been here, what are the three things that the Abrahamic covenant promised? A land, a seed, and a worldwide blessing. Now, each of those three promises, that is, Israel is supposed to have a land, there is going to be a continuing generation, the Jew will never, ever be removed from history. Hitler can kill them. The Jew-hating Muslims can try to exterminate the present modern state of Israel if they want to. But God said in the Abrahamic covenant, the seed will remain. And not only will the seed remain, it will produce the Messiah. And the land seed. And the third thing is that the Abrahamic covenant says... Israel ultimately will bless the world. Now let's see two ways in which she has already blessed the world. What is the contribution of Israel down through time that you hold in your lap? The Bible. The Word of God. It didn't come from Gentiles. It came from Jews. It came out of Israel's experience. So Israel's number one contribution so far to civilization has been the Bible, the Word of God. Second contribution of the nation Israel as a worldwide blessing to the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel has produced the Messiah. Both the book and the Savior have come from the Jews. You remember that next time you hear some anti-Semitic thing. Just remember that. And also remember something else. There's a little clause, a little fine print in the Abrahamic covenant. And God says, I will bless those who bless you. And guess what else? I will curse those who curse you. So just keep it up as far as these people that want to attack and eliminate the Jew from history. Just go ahead. Keep it up and watch what happens. I will bless them that bless you and I will curse him that curses you. Well, that's the Abrahamic covenant and that's a statement of God's sovereignty. So that's the connection there. Now, each of these three parts of the Abrahamic covenant were then amplified in other covenants. By the way, passages for Abrahamic covenant, for those of you who want to look this up, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. All those are passages that have to do it. There's some more in there, but those are the big three. Now, the second way, the, the, the first way in which the Abrahamic covenant land promise was expanded is what is called, sometimes scholars call it the Palestinian covenant. And I will go through that one tonight in one of these passages. It was, that is found in Deuteronomy 30 and is also found in Genesis 15. And that's an expansion of this number one element. That is expanded in the Palestinian covenant. In other words, it's explained what the land is, where it's located, and its destiny down through time. The land that the modern state of Israel occupies, God says, 
will belong to the Jew. And not only the modern state of Israel, a good chunk of modern state of Syria, a good chunk of Lebanon is also going to be part of the Jew domain. And there's going to be no discussion between the United Nations or anybody else. That's God's sovereign plan. Okay, they're going to get the land eventually. The seed promise was amplified in a covenant called the Davidic covenant because it was the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that said the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be manifest through the family of David. And the David, the son of David, the greater son of David, on down through the corridors of time, there will be a son of David who will sit forever on the throne of Israel. So the, the seed promise gets clearer and clearer and clearer as you go down through history. That's the story of the Old Testament. It's clarifying what is the seed. Then we have the worldwide blessing, and that is amplified in a covenant in the Old Testament called the New Covenant. That is found in Jeremiah 33. 32 and 33, somewhere in there. And the New Covenant says that Israel one day will be regenerated as a nation, not just as individuals, but a nation. There'll be 100% believers in Israel. And certain spiritual phenomena will happen and so forth and so on. That's the New Covenant. Now, those four covenants emphasize the sovereignty of God. They are the framework for all the stories of the Bible. They all can be related to this. When we study these four passages tonight, you'll see that the ideas of these covenants playing. To understand Isaiah, to understand Jeremiah, to understand Daniel, to understand Amos, to understand those prophets, you must realize that they all are articulating details of those covenants. Now, if this is new material for you, here's a tip to help understand and kind of, you know, get it straight. Substitute for the word covenant, contract. That might help. Because our modern word contract is exactly what the old word covenant meant. Covenant sounds so religious and spooky. So, if that, you know, that's your problem, just think of contract. Just like you'd go to the bank and you have a contract, uh, auto loan, mortgage on your house, uh, business contract. What is a contract? A contract is between two or more parties, right? Bank and you, or in business, one business and another business. Or you buy something that's very expensive and you have a warranty and it's sort of like a contract. What is a contract? Let's think it through. You have to have parties to a contract, right? And that's the it's agreement. It's a legal agreement between two or more people. What else is true of a contract? There's terms. There's qualifications. There's what we call the fine print. There's details that control the legal relationship between the parties to that contract. If you have a, a loan on your car, 
you got a deal from the bank. The bank owns your car until you finish paying for it. And it's all there. And it doesn't make any difference whether you feel like it or not, whether you feel happy or feel sad, or today's a bad day and tomorrow's a good day, or you can't make the payment or you can make the payment. It doesn't make any difference. The contract stays the same. The terms of the contract stay the same until the contract is fulfilled. In a mortgage case, when is it fulfilled? When you pay off the note, then mortgage goes away. Great day. So the contracts have a lifetime. Now here's something else about contracts that's very, very, very useful for, to understand the Bible. If you and the person you're in a contract with have a dispute, you go to a judge or a jury or, or some legal thing and you get a, an interpretation of the contract. Now let me ask you a question. If you're involved in a, in a dispute over a contract, what kind of hermeneutic, what kind of method of interpretation of the text is used? Allegorical or literal? Literal. Wouldn't it be nice if they interpret mortgages allegorically? Nobody does that. And yet, isn't it strange, when theologians get involved with a contract in the Bible, now all of a sudden we hit Greece. And we're sliding all over the place with allegorical interpretation. Where's this come from? You don't handle contracts allegorically. You handle them literally. So here's the argument for a literal hermeneutic. And you can't get away from these contracts and what they say. And theologians are not good contract people. They really, as a group of people, they're liberal artsy people or something. I don't know what goes on with them, but they really get greasy and slide all over the place. And they're doing things to the Bible they would never do to their own mortgage contract or their, or their auto loan contract or their business agreement. I'll bet you when these theologians that talk about allegorical hermeneutics, you know what I like to ask them? Did you publish a book, fella? Yeah, I published. Did you have a contract with a publisher? Yeah. How do you interpret that one? Literally or allegorically? The book might be on allegorical interpretation, but the contract that controls the printing of the book isn't. It's literal. So, contracts are literal. Now, those are the contracts that God makes with man. And here's something else that you want to throw out someday for conversation. Guess what? is the only nation in human history to have a contract with God. Does China have a contract with God? Does America have a contract with God? Russia have a contract with God? Nobody has contracts with God except one nation. And you know the nation. Isn't that interesting? Nobody's ever had any other contract. No nation in the entire history of mankind has ever claimed to have a treaty with God other than Israel. Okay. Now we introduce one more contract, and this is a special one. This is the Mosaic Law, or the Sinaitic Covenant, sometimes it's called. Now, the Sinaitic Covenant has a little different slant. The Sinaitic Covenant is what we call a two-party covenant that is conditional. 
the blessings and the cursings of the Mosaic Covenant basically are this. Let me just give it to you real simple, and then we'll go into Leviticus and it gets complicated. So here's the simple approach. Leviticus 26 is going to give us how the Mosaic contract worked out, the terms of that contract. See, everything in the Bible is really quite well organized. It doesn't look that way when you first start, but it really, you dig down, and there's, a, there's a good structure here. The Mosaic contract says, if you obey the Lord, you will be blessed. If you disobey the Lord, you're going to be cursed. Quite simple. But that's the essence of the Sinaitic Covenant. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't guarantee anything other than consequences for choices. So if Israel is to have a certain future, it can't be contingent on human choice. Now this introduces an interesting subject. For those of you who have Reformed theology friends, these guys always think that they are the only people on earth that have some sort of concept of sovereignty of God. Now we've just gone through four contracts that are based on the sovereignty of God. All of them are unconditional. They have nothing to do with choices in the sense that God promises those things are going to happen, period. But now look, if the Sinaitic covenant is true and God blesses on the basis of obedience, Put on your thinking hat and combine them. And what do you come up with? Let's take this new covenant right here. You know why that new covenant is called new? Because the Sinaitic covenant is called old. Now the Sinaitic covenant, or the Mosaic law, said that Israel would be cursed if she disobeyed. Israel would be blessed if she obeyed. Well, what was the history? We've been all through that over the years. What's the history of the Old Testament? Israel really proved itself, right? Really was obedient all the time? Got blessed? No. Israel was disobedient, and God had to discipline them, put them in Babylonian captivity, and go through all the rest of the stuff. So they're going through all this, this fallout of their own negative choices under the Mosaic Law Treaty, and they're getting depressed, and they're saying, wait a minute, if in the Abrahamic covenant God promised that we would be in the land, how does, how does that come about? Well, it can only come about, that land promise can only come about if what happens? Let's think about this. If God sovereignly says that the land, they will be in the land, but in the Mosaic covenant says you won't be unless you obey, what is the conclusion to the logic? That in the future they will obey. There will be a time when they will obey, because if they don't obey, they're never going to get blessed. And so what is that future obedience promise? That is the new covenant. There will come a time when the nation will turn back to God. And when they do, they will be blessed. And that was the promise you've heard me say time and time again. What did the Lord Jesus say toward, just before he was crucified to the city of Jerusalem? He said, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But we know he's going to come, right? Because that's promised. 
So if we know that Christ is going to come back, and that's a promise, we can conclude that Israel will say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know anything more Calvinistic than what I just told you. See what I'm talking about? Is that the sovereignty of God guarantees that sometime in the future, they are going to believe corporately. Now let's go to Leviticus. This is a tough, nasty chapter in Old Testament history. There's some stuff in here that, uh, I don't know, I, if Christians read this more seriously, I, I think we'd have a little more serious view of God. Because I want you to notice, the verses 1 to 14, that's not on the chart. Well, yes it is. Down on uh, the, the third row of the chart, under Leviticus 26, you'll see where... Um, yeah, the, page 114 is the one that you have to kind of slant because my wife ran it through the copy machine. A little, Dave was saying, there's nothing wrong with this piece. It's just like, just okay, you have to do that. But the third row of the chart, ultimate enjoyment of the blessings in the land, verses 1 to 13. See what it says? You will not make for yourselves idols, nor you will set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar. That's all a false religion. Verse 2, you will keep my Sabbaths. You will reverence my sanctuary. Verse 3, see there's the if, there's the condition. If you walk in my statutes, if you keep my commandments, then, verse 4, I will give you rain in their season so the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Now, let's stop right there. In modern English... What kind of blessing are they talking about right there? This is a nation. And God says, if you as a nation will obey me, then I will send rain. And what kind of a blessing today would we say that is like? Some word for it. Economic blessings. The economy of a nation that obeys God here, that Israel, if Israel would obey God, her economy would prosper. That's what he's saying. So this is talking about business. Because what was the big business of the time? Agriculture. So he's saying, I will give rains in their seasons so the land will yield its produce. What do you sell to make money? The results of the fields. This is produce. This is, this is dollars and cents here. He's talking about economic prosperity will follow Israel if, notice the clause, if, verse 3, if you will do that, then you will be economically prosperous. Verse 5, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering. Grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Now, what's that talking about? You know, we talk about cycles in the economy like this. It's talking about it will be damped out, that there will be a, a regular, soft progress in the economy. There won't be this volatility up and down all the time. It's smooth. Verse 5 is talking about a smooth economic history. Verse 6, I will also grant peace in the land so you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall eliminate harmful beasts from the sea and no sword will pass through your land. But you will chase your enemies. They will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. Your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Verses 6, 7, and 8 in modern English are talking about what kind of prosperity? 
military victory. Security, national security. Verse 11, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. That's talking about a spiritual prosperity. That God is going to be with his people. They're going to actually get a chance to see him. And they did. His Shekinah glory dwelt there in the tabernacle. Now, verse 14. Looking on your chart, page 114 again, Notice row one that goes across. Discipline and exile. This includes both the Babylonian and Roman conquest. So verses 14 through 39 show what's going to happen if you don't obey me. By the way, this is good, this is good material for parents and parenting because what is God? He's a parent of the nation here, isn't he? And what is he doing to his children? He's laying out the consequences. You do this, and you're going to be blessed, and you do that, and you're going to be cursed. You're going to have a problem here, fella, if you do that. And it's all announced up front. There's no surprises later on. The rules are all very set out, very nice and clear up front, and it's just a matter of consistently following the principles that were laid out up front. So, verse 14, if you don't obey me, and you don't carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances, I in turn will do this to you. Watch what he's going to do. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, a consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. You shall sow your seed uselessly, your enemies shall eat it up. I will set my face against you so you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no man is pursuing you. Now let's look at those verses for a minute. Let's take them apart. And let's see, let's think about what's going on here. What are the consequences? He's saying, if instead you reject these things, I will appoint you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever. In terms of modern English, where is that cursing located? Public health. It's talking about public health here. And it's not just physical health, because he's talking about sudden terror, psychological health, physical health. And you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies shall eat it up. Economic disaster, where the land is, is raped. All the fruit and the production is gone, it's stolen or destroyed by the enemy. So we have economic disaster. Verse 17, you have military disasters. Verse 18, if after these things you don't obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. In other words, if you don't get the picture, keep it up and you're going to get more of it. This is God speaking here. Look at how nasty he can be sometimes. I will break down your pride of power. I will make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Talking about agricultural disaster. There's a climate problem there. Talk about global warming. This is global drying. This is drought. It's cutting off the root of a national economy by destroying the national the sources, the resources. 
Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land shall not yield its produce. The trees of the land will not yield their fruit. And then he goes on. If you act hostility again and are unwilling to obey me, I'll, I'll increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you among the beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children, destroy your cattle, reduce your numbers so your roads lie deserted. See, it's talking about social disruption. It's talking about economic disaster. If by these things you're not turned to me, but act hostility, then I will grant hostility against you. You see, it just keeps on increasing. There are cycles of his discipline, and it gets more and more intense the more the disobedience. I will bring upon you a sword, which will execute vengeance for the covenant. Notice the covenant. That's the contract, Sinaitic covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you, so you be delivered into enemy hands. So here's the nation desperately trying to defend itself against the enemy. And what do they get? A public health disaster on top of it all. And when I break off the staff of your bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven. They will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so you will eat and you will not be satisfied. And it just keeps on increasing. Look at this. Verse 29. Now, this is horrible. Verses 28 and 29. And let me just say that as horrible as this is, this actually happened twice in history that we know of and may have happened three times. Take a look at this one. Verse 28. This is almost unbelievable. I will act wrathful hostility against you. I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. And I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense, keep your remains and the remains of your idols for my social people. I will lay waste your cities, make you sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your smoothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and I'll draw a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities waste. Now, verse 29. While it may refer, of course, to the Moloch, the worship of Moloch in which they sacrifice babies to the god of fire, burn their own babies up, terrible stuff. Uh, it most likely also refers to what happened in the city of Jerusalem in 586 and AD 70. The city was under siege, and it was a long, long siege, and the food ran out. And if you want to read this outside of the Bible, go to the library and take out a book called Josephus. Wars of the Jews. And he tells you what happened, because he was there, A.D. 70. And he watched what happened. The people became so desperate for... ...one person's mouth of their baby and yank it out of their mouth so they could eat it. That actually happened. Horrifying picture. But why did it happen? People, oh, well, gosh, his God's a real meanie here. Well, wait a minute. How, how many verses do we have to read to get to verse 28 from 14? God had told him, you know, if you disobey me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish you. And if I don't get your attention the first time, I'm going to seven times more. It escalates. It keeps escalating. So this thing that everybody thinks is so horrible is after seven or five, I think it's five cycles here, five cycles later, yeah, it happens. But they've had four cycles before to get with the program and nothing happens. So God just keeps it up and keeps it up and keeps it up. Now, this is interesting. 
And this is an aspect to God that we as Christians need to think about because it is tied in with our election, with our, this God's choice of, uh, of us as people who are saved and people who have trusted in Him, become His children, abide with Him forever, have eternal life. Now, here's the consequence. If we are God's and He can't get rid of us, do you see why, what He's after here? If, if he didn't care about Israel, he'd let so, okay, take off, see you around. But he doesn't. He keeps after the nation, and after the nation, and after the nation, until they finally do turn around. He pursues them in all the cursing. And the fact that he pursues them in all the cursing is a sign of his parenthood. That's what Hebrews 12 is talking about. Same idea. Children who are illegitimate, he says, aren't disciplined. But children who are genuine children are disciplined because the parent is that much concerned to straighten them out and get things right. So the, the, the suffering is actually underneath a sovereign purpose for good. Now, in verse 33, there you have the prediction of exile. One of the signs in Israel's history, and this is, remember now, this is uh, 1400 B.C., the first, the, say the major exiles is 600. This is eight centuries ahead of time. God was talking about exile. What else do you see in verse 33? Look at verse 33. What is one of the cursings? What was one of the blessings? To be in the land and dwell securely, remember? Well, what's the cursing? I'm going to kick you out of the land and you're not going to have security anywhere. Then, verse 34, he says, the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you're in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. See, they wouldn't trust the Lord, so they worked seven days a week instead of six. They worked all seven years instead of six years. Israel had, in their divinely arranged economy, and to explain this, let, let me just digress here a minute. Here's an interesting concept. And this is true of the, the economy under the Old Testament. Here's what would happen. Here's how God designed the economy. didn't work out because people wouldn't listen to him. But what God did is he said, every seventh year in your business, I want you to shut the doors and take a vacation. I want it mandatory that you are only going to work for six years, period. And the seventh year you're going to have a year-long vacation. Then you're going to come back the eighth year and you're going to start another cycle of six years to work and the seventh off. Just like six days a week, one day off. Six years at business and one year off. And people go, oh, well, how can we do that? How are we going to live in the seventh year? God promised that if we would obey, Israel would obey, that is, if Israel would obey, then they would be economically blessed in those six years and they would save enough so that they could get through that seventh year. And it was a break from work. It was a break time, not just to go out and watch the football game necessarily. It was, it was to have a time when there would be a break in your life to have a rest and get your head straightened out spiritually and get out of the details every day that just drowns us and we can't get perspective because it's uh, you know one thorn and thistle after another, and you just want to just 
give me some rest. You know, let me just get my head straight again. So it was a wonderful economy, and they wouldn't do it. And so God, that's what this meaning here in verse 34 is. He says, okay, you know, I told you that I wanted every seventh year to take a break, and you wouldn't do it. You kept working the land. See this picture of the land here. They kept sowing the seed, harvesting the crops, sowing the seed, harvesting the crops. And he said, wait a minute. Every seventh year, I want you not to sow any seed and let the land have a, have a rest. And by the way, do you know that that practice was done, I believe, I read one place where the, the Protestant farmers in the Netherlands used to practice that. They would sow crops on a field. And that field, they'd have crops on it six years. In the seventh year, they would, they'd just let it go fallow. And then they'd go over here and do another field. And that was, they don't, it was a kind of a tradition that they got out of here. But it was designed for the, for the, national, for the nation. Now, in verse 40, oh, well, keep, let's keep on reading here. All the days of its desolation, observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. Now, why do you suppose they would work the seventh year and not rest? Nobody likes to work, necessarily, but why did they work? Because they wouldn't trust the Lord for the produce. And they weren't getting blessed in the six years when they were working because they weren't obeying the Lord. As for those of you who may be left, I'll bring weakness in their hearts and the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driving leaf will chase them, even when no one's pursuing. See, see there's no rest. There's, no psych- there's a public health thing in the, in the psychiatry, in the psychology of the nation. They will stumble over each other as if running from the sword, but well, no one's pursuing. Everybody's frightened here. It's going on. It's part of the cursing of God. You will perish among the nations, and your enemies will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of the iniquity in the lands of your enemies, because of the iniquity of the forefathers. They will rot away with them. Now verse 40. The very end of this, notice the fact that God just doesn't leave it on a negative note. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, by the way, notice Israel is generational, something else I did not put in the notes. There's that generational connection that when they confess their sins, they actually had an identity with their father and their grandfather back four generations. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility to them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humble so that they will then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember... Now, what covenant is this in verse 42? There's the Abrahamic covenant. My covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and then I will remember the land. There's the sovereign, unconditioned covenant of God. But it's going to come about because they obey. For the land shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, notice verse 44. Here's your eternal security of the nation Israel. There's the sovereign unconditionality of it. I won't reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. 
I will remember them for the covenant with their ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I may be God, I am the Lord. That's amplified elsewhere in the Old Testament, verse 45. To be, it comes out like this. God is saying that if I let this nation go, and I just that's it, forget it. If I did that, then it would not glorify me. Because I started this nation in history. And the other nations could then ridicule me, God, for, for failing. So see, God has a vested interest. Once he commits to doing something in history, he's going to follow through on it. For his own glory. Not because we're so great, but for his own glory. Okay. Verse, so we've gone through, verse, uh, through all the verses of Leviticus 26. And in the chart, table 8, if you go back to that, I want you to notice three things we've covered tonight in that Leviticus 26 passage. We've just, we, we, it's an outline in one sense of the history. Now, I've sequenced Leviticus 26 kind of backwards, if you notice in the column. I've put verses 1 to 13 down below. That's because if you compare with the other passages, in the overall schema of Israel's history, that's how it worked out. The first uh, situation, the origin, nothing is said about that in Leviticus 26. We'll get into that in another one. Second row in Table 8 is discipline and exile. That will be a stage in Israel's history. Discipline and exile. And who were the guys that developed the details of that? The prophets. Amos, Daniel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Habakkuk, and all those little books that nobody reads. Those guys were amplifying the terms of discipline. They were spelling it out. Here's what you're going to have with this nation. Here's your relationship with that nation. Here's what's going to happen with a drought. Here's what's going to happen with a military defeat over here. Here's what's going to happen to the pestilence in your land. All those subjects. That's subjects of the prophets. See how the prophets fit into this picture? They're administrating that second row, the discipline in exile. Third row on table eight is judgment of the nations. Finally, history will culminate in a judgment and Israel will be returned to the land. But it's going to be a judgment of Israel and the nations round about. That will become clear in other passages. That's here. I put verses 40 to 45 because remember what it says in verse 44 and 45. In spite of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, notice the fine print, when they are in the land of their enemies, that is, they're not in the promised land, they've been exiled, but when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I abhor them to destroy them, breaking my covenant. I will remember them. That's all it says. I will remember them. Other passage of just, by, by remember them, what he means is he's going to bring them back. He's, they're not forgotten. They're not going to be left there. So the third row on table eight deals with the judgment of the nations. And that will be filled in as we go to other passages. And that's one of our critical things because obviously in chapter 5 here in this Thursday night series, we're working toward the end of the church age and we're going to get involved with the judgment of the nations. But I want you to notice, before the forget the church a moment, the judgment of the nations is all forecast right here in the covenants. 
So that tells you that the church really doesn't have a clear-cut connection with this judgment on the nations. The church is something different. Israel's connected to the judgment of the nations. Okay, the last row in table eight. The ultimate enjoyment of blessings in the land. There will come a day when blessing will happen. And I think you've already seen tonight that the way that blessing would be visualized, how did we say? Remember I asked you in plain English what are the blessings and the cursings and what do we say? What were some of them? Economic, public health, sociological, psychological, military victory, peace, security in the land. See how they visualized? That gives you a picture of what the kingdom is going to look like. It's not some ethereal spiritual thing. That's how anyone in the Old Testament visualized God's blessings. In those terms. So it's those terms that give content to what will eventually become the millennial kingdom that we'll talk about. But we are not there yet. Those details have yet to come. Now contrast what you have just spent the last half hour going through in Leviticus 26, contrast that with things you read in the New Testament about the church. Do you ever read in New Testament epistles about economic prosperity on a society? Do you ever read about military victories or military defeats in the sense that we're talking about here in the New Testament? No, you don't. See, there's something different here. And that's what I want you to pick up as we work our way through this, is that Israel and the church are different. They have different perspectives. And we've got to respect that when we try to get this all together as to what's going to happen in the future. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have a purpose in history. And because you have a purpose in history, We know that we have a purpose in our personal lives, in our individual lives, because we fit into and are part of the history that has purpose to it. And we pray that we could be witnesses in our daily life of the optimism and hope, and that we don't have to despair. All is not chaos. All is not purposelessness. But there is a loving God who is sovereign and omnipotent, leading history on to a final climax. And we can thank, be thankful that we know the details of that by going to your word. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We thank you tonight now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's uh, have 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so of uh, Q&A, if there are any Q's to A.
Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. And and. Yeah, I, I, Dave has just raised the issue of, isn't it rather appalling to see how these people who knew the law, because it was taught to them by the Levitical priests, went ahead and did their own thing anyway, got clobbered, and kept on doing their own thing. Now, that's a testimony of something. And what is the testimony is the depravity of man. Um, the good news is that God is going to work in history to bring about blessing in spite of that depraved nature. That's the, that's the wonderful story. That God, that's why God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Um, God loved the world. God loves the stinkers. And we're the stinkers. And he loves us enough to have done something substantively about it. When in fact, left to ourselves... We are the same kind of people that the nation Israel was in. Now, in that chart that I showed where you have age, you know, it goes step up like a stair step, and it had one age leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to God's purpose. If you think about what was the stage of history prior to the rising of the nation Israel? Well, it was Gentile nation. It didn't have any Israel. They were all Gentile nations. Now, think about... Where did they come from? Well, they came from Noah's sons and daughters. Daughters-in-law. Sons and daughters-in-law. So, if the whole planet of, the, uh, of our planet was colonized out of the Noahic family, didn't every nation at one time have access to revelation? Sure they did. And what did they do with it? They perverted it. If you want to see how the sin nature perverts... Um, the gray and grand ideas of scripture, here's an exercise to do sometime. And it, I've encouraged students to do this at times in their educational classes because sooner or later, all teachers do this, sooner or later teachers give an assignment to read mythology. And they'll have the kids read, usually it's Edith Hamilton's book on mythology or somebody like that. And They'll, they'll talk about these great myths. Yet when you look at the myths, you see elements, if you're careful, you see elements of truth in them. For example, Pandora's box. I mentioned it here several times in the Q&A. Pandora was, was a female, and she opened a box and evil came out all over the world. Well, now, come on. Where's that? What does that idea remind you of? It's Genesis 3 all over again. But what you need to do is read Genesis 3 and then read the myths of Pandora's box and see the different context. Every time you do that, you'll notice something happens. All the myths have been cleverly designed to absolve man from responsibility. It's always an accident. It's always somebody caused me to do it. It's something else that happens. And, and, you, and what do you see, read in Genesis? So here's Pandora's box myth. I'm just using it as an illustration. But here's a myth. And you take the Bible up against it. And look at what's common to them. And you'll see common elements. But then you'll see the whole grand context of the myth is anti-responsibility. And blame God for it. 
If you take Genesis 1 and 2 and compare, go to the library and get a book like um, uh, Gilgamesh Epic out, or get Enuma Elish out, or some, some one of the Babylonian myths of creation, and what you find is the gods are killing each other and having big fights and so on, and then they decide to make this man down here. Well, now, I mean, what's the context of man then? In, in a con there's already this divine conflict going on. And, and so God, the gods, plural, uh, are debating among each other, and depending which one beats up all the other ones, that's the one that rules today. Well, then next week, another god comes up and beats them all up, and he rules next week. So see, that's that lack of continuity in history. Well, the God of the Bible doesn't do that. Come on. So, the best exercise you can have to see the sin nature pervert this up here is to look at myth and compare it to the Bible. And watch what happens. You have a degradation. And it's always the same kind of degradation. That's what's remarkable. It's always anti-responsibility. I'm a victim. And it's always God is a meaning. And it's always death is always here. Evil is always rampant. Blah, 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 blah. Never was a time when everything was good. Very good. See, the Bible says, yes, there was. When it left God's hands, it was very good. Myths doesn't say that. Sometimes there's a faint memory there. But that, anyway, that's the men mental perversion. What Dave pointed out is the political, historical, social um, evil of men and women. We just deprave beings. And that's the story of the Old Testament. How anybody can read the Old Testament at all, seriously, and walk away with the idea that man's going to improve himself, I don't know. They must be reading a different Bible. There was a perfect environment that God created in the Garden of Eden. I mean, the communists, the socialists, and all the welfare state people couldn't create an Eden. And if they could create an Eden, man falls in the middle of that. And in the millennial kingdom, what happens after a thousand years? Oh, if we had righteous leaders, by golly, well, life would be different. Baloney. There's 999 years in the millennium with perfect leadership. What happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? Another revolt. So come on, what's it a demonstration of? It's a demonstration so when we go into the eternal state, there's never a question raised for all eternity about the problem of sin. When you rebel against God, that's what you mean. You can't ever get it together. You know the old thing, children's myth, about Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again? That's the fall of man. All the king's men cannot put it back together again. And you can have all the programs you want to, spend millions of dollars you want to, and you will never change the nature of people. And that is why it is so important that what goes forth into society? The good news of Jesus Christ. That's why only the gospel can change people's lives. And nothing else will do it. Yes, George. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, talk about them not getting it together, and uh, yet here we have the life of Christ with us. And all we have to do is 
that this little bit of flesh through the power of the spirit, and we still can't get it. <laughs> and in that, in that, something. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just that, just being, I don't know, partially flesh, rather than totally flesh, and the spirit of, of the sovereign God living within us. And we still, we still have the same types of troubles. Do you ever read uh, Kings and go through there and? Uh, and you know, just just one defeat after another. These kings just come up and they're wicked. You know, wicked like uh, what's his name was. And uh, and yes, and this one followed in the in the evil ways of you know his great grandfather and so on and so forth. And then you get to one where all right, he's like getting right, and but he won't tear you know he won't tear down the won't tear down the high places and stuff. And then you get just. Josiah, who was two yeah. years old, and you think, oh, my, do, do you get, I mean, do you get excited yeah. about that? Yeah. And, and yet, it lasts for, like, one generation. That's right, it's all over. I mean, Josiah's son was more evil than, yeah. than many of the previous ones. Just one generation. Does it tell, does it tell us anything about passing and then Well, that, yeah, what George is saying here is a good example of just reading Kings and seeing the stories of depravity and seeing not only that it's the kings that are depraved but it's the people that are depraved along with them it's not just the kings because prior to kings was a book called Samuel and prior to Samuel what was the book that showed that the people before they had a king were all out of it and that was the book of Judges so it's, it's, it's not the leaders always it's the people and the leaders, all of us. It's a very unflattering picture of man. But you see, what does Paul say? The law was a what to bring us to Christ? It was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Why did God have preserve? Think about it this way. Do you know of any nation on earth that preserved its own history from its origin over many, many centuries that was so brutally honest as the writers of Scripture. They're writing about their national heroes. And here they are showing the sin of everybody. They're writing about their own sin. Now, doesn't that strike you as an interesting testimony, how brutally honest they were? And you know what enabled them to do that? It was the grace of God because... They could confess their sin and not be devastated in the sense that, okay, I've broken his law, but all is not lost because he's going to provide a way of salvation. So what, this, what these bad stories do, you know, you get, it could be a depressing experience reading through all this stuff. And you see one failure after another. Of course, it makes you feel good when you fail, too. I mean, because, you know, they fail, too. But the point, what, the big story here is that by seeing the failure, it knocks the props out from under any idea that we ever should entertain about self-improvement programs. They're not going to work. It gets back to, uh, I have a friend who's in AA, and, uh, you know, people in, have this problem. Um, with alcoholism, they say one of the, they can't do a thing until they admit they can't do anything. And when the person, the alcoholic, admits that they can't do anything, that's the first step in, in solving the problem. 
Well, that's a, kind of a mini picture of what this is all about. When we will grasp our own depravity, and no matter how nice we may be on the surface, at heart we are depraved people, and worse than just being depraved people, we are people who have merited his judgment. And now we're in a legal problem. We have violated law, his law. And now the question is, what shield do we have against judgment? We don't have any. Nothing out of our own self. And that's why it forces, why Paul says, the schoolmaster brings us to Christ. Where else are you going to go? You know anybody else you're going to go to? To, to? to walk into the presence of God? I don't. Buddha's not going to do it. Confucius isn't going to do it. Muhammad isn't going to do it. So the good news is, that you get so depressed about the sin nature that you look out of yourself, beyond yourself, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means, a schoolmaster. And that's what the law is all about. So it's not meant to throw everybody in a depression. It's meant to force us to change the way we think about ourselves, about God, and about salvation. And it's a process. I recently spoke in Idaho to this group that left New Tribe's mission to take some of the techniques that the missionaries found worked with the gospel in primitive tribes, and lo and behold, they're sharpening the tools so we can use it in the West. Because what they're finding is the Western world, the educated world, is going as much pagan as the tribes used to be. So the irony is that we're learning from the missionaries that went to the primitive tribes because they learned how to preach the gospel clearly so they can bring the method of preaching the gospel clearly back to us so we can preach it clearly. And when you see this, this video I'm hoping to show you sometime, <coughs> you'll see the amazing effect they had. You know what they discovered? That you can't preach the gospel too quickly because in America we like quick things. And they found out that, that the, the key was that you slow go slow and you take them right smack dab through all the crud of the law. And they were saying that when they tried this in the primitive tribes, the people would get depressed and there'd, there'd be all kinds of problems and they'd go on for lesson after lesson after lesson. They would not preach the gospel yet. They had to discipline themselves to take people all the way through the crud before they got to the gospel. And they found it, they, they said the temptation is when you see all these people just totally upset, realizing that they've sinned against a holy God, realizing they're hell-bound, realizing that they face his judgment, and everybody's upset, the whole village is upset, that you want to do something. You know, the, the mercy within your heart tries to say, well, well, it's not that bad, let me, let me, no. What they would do is say, no. God's story must be told chapter by chapter, event by event, because there's a divine rationale between the pedagogical sequence that God used in history. They had to go through this experience. And we have to, in our understanding, go through the experience of realizing our depravity before we come to the cross of Christ. Otherwise, it's trivial. It trivializes the cross not to go through that process. But when you do go through the process, you know what else they discovered when they did it that way? By the way, they only discovered this in the 1980s. 
uh, they had realized that there was a whole bunch of syncretism in the mission field, and the mission fields where the missionaries had been there for 70 years, and they still had all the syncretism. And they discovered syncretism was mixing the Bible and paganism together. And they went, what the heck is going on here? You know, we sent missionaries to this place for generations, and we're still seeing syncretism. I mean, haven't we got it straight yet? Well, they found out that the gospel had never been clearly, it was, it was preached too fast. It was preached hastily and became trivialized. And so they found that when they would take people through that sequence of seeing what they were sinners, basically that's what it is. I mean, we say we go through that, but we go through it too fast. They went through it slowly and, and with, it, with audiovisual aids that they learned to develop. And they found out when these people trust the Lord, they had, they had trouble, of course, in their Christian life. It's not saying they didn't. But they had the basic tools already in place to live the Christian life. Because they came to that gospel point clearly. And if the gospel is clear, it saves so many heartaches and headaches on later on. But the gospel's got to be clear. So how do you make the gospel clear? Got to make it sin clear first. Got to make God's holiness clear. So all these stories and these mechanics that we're going through here on Israel's role in history is to illustrate that. And that's why these covenant passages and that table number eight, if you'll go through those, we're going to spend, if it takes two or three Thursday nights, we're going to go through all those. Because that sets up the basis. So when we get to the return of Christ, we'll understand the judgment of the nations and the judgment he is executing does not have the church in mind. It has in mind all this other stuff that was going on in history. Israel is in mind. The Gentiles are in mind. It explains why in Matthew 25, what is the judgment when he says the sheep and the goats are going to be separated at the end? It doesn't make sense if you mix the church into it. Because what is the criterion of the sheep and the goats? The sheep are those who helped Israel in the tribulation, and the goats are the ones who didn't. Huh? What is he separating people on the basis of that for? Because the church isn't there. The church is not part of that. That's part of Israel and the Gentile issues. So the texts don't make sense if you keep mixing things together. So that's what we're trying to prevent. So that's why we're going back to the Old Testament and kind of reviewing what we did four or five years ago with that, the Old Testament mechanics of history. So those, yes, Debbie. Just one question with that, uh, the mixing. Um, then how do we, I mean, like when I read that, I see that as, you know, God speaking, it seems like at least the first part of it, there's promises there. So like, you know, when we're in a drought time, it's, it's almost like, okay, God, mm-hmm. we disobeyed and that's the reason why we're in a drought time. How are Christians supposed to read passages like this? Um, just as history and just as for Israel or um, you know yeah. like even even into the prophets there seems to be more of those kind of promises of like like the Jeremiah one that you know I have plans for you plans to prosper you not to harm you how are Christians supposed to handle those promises Can okay you take them personally as Personal problems, um, can we take that as personal pro- promises, or do we totally look at them as okay, historical per- promises for Israel? 
and just get a glimpse of the God of Israel, but not necessarily take them for ourselves. Okay, uh, Debbie raised a, big, uh, a very interesting question, and I don't have time tonight to answer it all, but that bring it up again because I want to go through. That's a very important question. Having made the separation between church and Israel, then what is the church's relationship to the Old Testament promises like this? And that's an important question, and there's a good answer to it, and it's not that we're separated from them either. Um, in a nutshell, if you look at the prophets, you have glimpses of them cursing other nations in the Old Testament. Jeremiah does it, Isaiah does it, and if you look at why they're cursing the other nations, it's because they haven't responded to the revelation available to them, or they've assaulted the revelation in Israel, something like that. And God disciplines them in very similar ways. So what the way to read those passages, like Leviticus 26 for us, is they show how God reigns in history, but he, he reigns more clearly to his chosen nation because it's his nation. He has a covenant relationship to that. He doesn't to the Gentile nations. But knowing that that's how God spangs, knowing that that's how God chastens, and knowing that he wants all men and all nations to come to him, you can pretty well infer that calamities, geophysical calamities and other calamities, may very well be a message to those particular locations geographically. The danger, Debbie, is that we don't have a prophetic connection between nation B and God directly. I mean, Melchizedek was the last of the Gentile priests, so it's not like in Afghanistan or even the United States. We've got somebody that can really articulate what's going on here. But we know enough of God from the Old Testament to know that droughts, ill health, and these other things can very well be disciplinary actions to waken people to Him and to His presence. And there's no question that we can make that inference. What we can't say is that it's nice and tight and all packaged like it was with Israel because God packaged it this neatly and this cause-effect. So I would say this, that God was a lot harsher on Israel than he is in the Gentile nations, simply because they are not his. In Deuteronomy 4.19, he says, I've given them over. Now, that doesn't mean he's totally given them over in the sense that he lets them do anything. But on the other hand, he doesn't have a tight relationship with nations other than Israel, like he had with Israel. It's tighter. But it's, but it's not like it's totally divorced. And the principle that you see behind those blessings and cursings do apply to the Christian life, except you just can't translate, gosh, uh, I'm having trouble in my business, and God's disciplining me. It might not be discipline. There's other reasons for it. So you have to be careful. But it is a revelation of how God works, and that he does mess around in history like that, severely at times. Um, people have said in, in church history, for example, one, one quickie, and then we'll shut up for the evening. Um, there are, I, I always am fascinated because I'm a weather guy, but I think that uh, God works through, through climate and weather very interestingly. Um, when the Spanish Armada came to conquer England, they outnumbered the English terribly. 
I mean, the, the navy that Philip had that he was going to invade England with was just enormous. The English didn't have a, a chance. But very mysteriously, a big storm happened and wiped out the Spanish Armada. Now, how come? Well, you have to say, God's in control here. And what is that? Well, it's, uh, frankly, England was a lot truer to the word of God than Spain was. Spain was the Inquisition, the site of the Inquisitions. So you kind of you know, leave it to your own guesswork of what was going on there. But that's an example of, yeah, God works that way. So anyway, we'll talk about that more often. We've got to quit.